We are once again in chapter 3. Let's pray. Father, we ask tonight that as we consider your word, that you would speak to us right now, that you would make this alive and practical, and that you would bless the discussion times that we have in our groups tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapter 3 starts off in the heavenlies. Look at verse 1 again. Paul writes, if, really it's since, since then you were raised with Christ. He's speaking of a fact that has happened to us. That's our position in Jesus. We have been raised with him. Since then you were raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. And then he says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. This chapter, it begins in the heavenlies, but it ends on the earth. Because what Paul talks about here in the end of this chapter is it's all about our relationships with one another. In the home, in the workplace, between husbands and wives, between parents and kids, between employers and employers. And that's important because, listen, Christianity is meant to be practical. It's meant to work in real life. So we've seen in this third chapter of our study in the book of Colossians that that in Christ we have a new destiny, and that new destiny should produce in us a new outlook. Again, look at verse 1. Since then you were raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind. Okay, new outlook. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. Here's why. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he's saying, since heaven is in our future... And since our future, in our future, we're going to be living with Jesus in his kingdom throughout eternity, that we are to live our lives now with eternity in view. To live our lives now with an eternal perspective. So we have a new destiny and we also have a new identity. Paul also talks about how we've been made alive in Christ. And as Aaron talked about last week, us being alive in Christ means that we're to be putting off our old man and putting on the new man, being who we are now in Jesus. And all of that adds up to the reality that we are to then live our lives with a new approach as it relates to our relationships. And so that's where we're going to pick up tonight in verse 18. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. 
And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1 is connected to this. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, when we read these verses, none of this really sounds abnormal to us because we're familiar with this. But here's what I want you to catch. What Paul is saying here would have been considered radical new thinking, especially for men living in the first century Roman Empire. Paul's teaching here would have been challenging to the cultural norms in the society of ancient Rome. And I point that out because I think it's really, really important that we remember the makeup of the first century Roman culture to which Paul was writing into. This is, let me give you some background into that culture. Rome was the dominant influence in the world at that time. They were the ruling power. And male dominance was written, get this, into Roman law. Men by law were the absolute heads of their households. And everyone else was considered inferior. The Roman mindset, now again, this, I'm just quoting history here. I'm not saying that this is right, okay? so let me make clear. Roman history, Roman mindset toward women said this. This is how they thought. This is what they practiced. We have prostitutes for sexual pleasure. We have female slaves to take care of our bodies. And we have wives to bear children and to take care of the house. That was the mindset, the male mindsets, in first century Roman Empire. So literally, under Roman law, a husband was obligated to provide a roof over his wife's head and the opportunity for her to bear children, and that was it. No date nights. (laughs) He didn't have to learn love languages. None of that. Just a roof over her head and to sleep with her now and then so she could bear some kids. In first century Rome, a husband could discard his wife for any reason. A father could beat or even kill his children with no second thought and there would be no recourse. A master could beat and kill their slaves. And so it was a male-dominated society where everyone else was subservient to the male heads of the house. So, knowing that's the background and that was the mindset, when we read what we just read, I mean, we see what Paul is is writing here would have been considered a radical new way of thinking about relationships. That in Christ, this is the point, we are to treat each other differently. So, to the wives, Paul writes, wives submit to your own husbands. Now, Now, note this. That wasn't new, okay? That was already a part of what they were required to do. A wife was required to submit to her husband. It was law. It wasn't just some, you know, crazy idea. It was written into the law. So that wasn't new. 
This is what was new. It's what he says in the second part of this when he says, as is fitting in the Lord. That's the radical thought that Paul is putting forth here. And with this simple statement, Paul was hitting on a very huge and important truth that applies to wives even today, and it's this, that a wife's submission to her husband is connected to her walk and relationship with Jesus. In other words, wives were to place themselves under their husband, not as a matter of Roman law, but voluntarily, like the church, is submitted to Jesus. That it wasn't a matter of law, but it was a matter of love, not obligation, but a matter of devotion, and the love first and foremost being towards the Lord, and devotion to the Lord. And the picture of a wife submitting and respecting her husband out of love, what Paul is saying is this is fitting to the Lord. Because God designed, Paul talks about this in Ephesians, for this marriage relationship when it's functioning properly, it's a beautiful picture of our relationship as the church being the bride of Jesus to Jesus who is our bridegroom. Now, this phrase, as is fitting, can also mean this. That it means, as is fitting in the Lord, it means it means that that a wife doesn't have to submit to her husband in everything. Now, before you go, all right, now you're talking, Pastor Rob. What I mean by that is this. What I mean by that is if your husband is asking you to do something that goes against Scripture, you don't have to submit to that because you are first and foremost as a wife to be submitted to Jesus as your head, as your Lord as your king. But the thing that Paul is saying here, the radical thing for a woman wasn't the command, but the how. The command was always submit. The Romans, they twisted it. The the wife was like property. She was like a slave that he would sleep with. A slave that would take care and bear him children. That was their their mindset. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't some Roman husbands that actually did love their wives, but most of them treated their wives like property. But the idea was, is the how and the motive is that as is fitting that I'm doing this first and foremost for Jesus. And that applies to every wife in every generation and culture. I'm I'm doing and being who God called me to be as a wife in this relationship because I love Jesus and I want to honor him. That's the message. Now, culturally speaking, the radical thing for the husband was that God would call them to love their wives at all. Because, you see, love for the husband was optional in that culture. And notice that Paul adds, and not grow bitter. Husbands, love your wives and don't grow bitter towards her. And and the the reason why he said that is because the men would view their wives like property and they would grow bitter. In the same way that we can grow bitter or dissatisfied would be another way to put it with, let's say, you know, you buy a new car. 
and you're super stoked about it, and you're driving around so everybody can see you in your car, you know, and you want to show it to your friends. But then, like, you know, six months goes by or a year goes by, the new model comes out, your friend comes pulling up with that, it's got even more gadgets than yours does, and, and you're like, man, I hate this car. I want that car, you know. Because we want the new model. We get discouraged, you know. Well, that's the thing. Like the, the husbands, they would get, you know, after some time, it's like they, they'd get discouraged with their wives because they'd see a new model, you know, coming by. It's like, I want that one now, you know. That, that was the mindset. And so he's saying, hey, don't, no, you love them and don't grow bitter toward them. Last week when my wife and I were in, Oregon, we rented a car, and it was one of those uh, cars that had, it was a little Prius, and it it had those um, sensor warnings. None of my cars have that. Um, So first time I've ever driven in a car that has that. How many of you have a car that does that? Okay, Yeah, God bless you guys. Uh, My wife was like, this could solve all our problems. (laughs) Because every time I kind of went a little too far to the shoulder, beep, 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 you know, anytime I, I was backing up and got beep, 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 and she's like, and she's always, she's my beep, beep, beep in my, <laughs> my car, you know. <laughs> she's like, this would be wonderful. This would solve all of our problems, you know. <laughs> but that's how the Roman men approach their wives, is they would grow discouraged with them because they'd, you know, some, they'd do something and, or they'd compare them with somebody else and they'd want a new model. But Paul says that in Christ, men, your attitude needs to change and Paul even elevates love in the highest form here because get this, the word he uses for love is agape. And agape is the highest form form of love because it's speaking of the way that God loved us. It's God's unconditional, perfect, and sacrificial love. And the book of Ephesians spells it out like this for us. It literally gives us a definition of what that love looks like when it says, husband, you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church in that he gave himself for it. Agape is a giving love, a sacrificial love. Get this. It's a love that puts the needs and well-being of someone else above your own. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. You see, Jesus was in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, sitting on the throne, worshipped by the host of heaven as part of the triune Godhead. Jesus was in that place of royalty and comfort and, and in that place of, of power. And the Bible says that he willingly left all of that for this reason. That he could come to this earth and become a man so that he could die and go to a cross so that we could be saved. Jesus forsook, listen, his own comfort to help us become who God wanted us to be. And that's the picture that Paul is painting here in Colossians when he uses that word love. And in Ephesians, when he paints the picture of you love husband the way that Jesus loved and that he gave himself for us. I, I heard somebody put it this way, that, that this is what Jesus did for us. He entered into our world and he died there. And he said, that's what a husband's supposed to do. 
He enters into his wife's world and he dies there. He dies to his needs. He dies to his rights. He dies and he comes to that place of just saying, hey, I, I want to I come under my wife and I want to serve my wife and I want to help my wife become who God wants her to be. Paul is describing the need of the husband to daily pick up his cross. And what does the cross represent? The cross represents, in the case of Jesus, listen, an instrument of death that brought life to others. That's what the cross is. The cross was an instrument of death that helped others become who they were meant to be in relationship with God. So to love your wife like Christ loved the church is to daily love her in a way that helps her become who she is meant to be. It's a serving love, a sacrificial love. And men are called to, we're called to value our wives. You see, the Bible paints this picture in the very beginning that marriage is an ordered equality. An ordered equality. Why do I say that? Well, back in the book of Genesis, it said this, that God gave, speaking about Adam and Eve, the first married couple, God gave them dominion. Them. God said to them, God blessed them. He, it wasn't that God gave dominion to Adam and said, and Eve, your job is to help him out. No, no, no. He gave it to them. It was an ordered equality between the husband and wife. It was a, a partnership. And that's the way God designed this to be. And so, guys, as we are loving our wives in that way, we, we do that by recognizing her strengths. We do that by recognizing her wisdom. We do that by bringing her into decisions. We recognize her sensitivity. We recognize that God has gifted her in ways that he hasn't gifted us. And it's the two of us working together. And so Paul is illustrating here how our new identity in Christ should result in how we reproach and what our mindset should be in this marriage relationship in this partnership, but also in the relationship between parents and kids. Look at verse 20 and 21 again. He says, children, obey your parents in all things. Everybody say, in all things. All the people sitting over here are going, that does, I don't like that, Pastor Rob. <laughs> but again, listen. Culture, go back, first century culture. What Paul is saying here, that this wasn't a new concept. That was the norm. That was expected. But then Paul adds this sentence, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And here's what he's telling us. Obedience really is an issue of motivation. Why do I want to obey my parents? Because it pleases the Lord. And as a Christ follower, first and foremost, my desire should be in everything is I want to please the Lord. In fact, in essence, this takes us back to what Aaron talked about last week in verse 17. Look at verse 17 again. It says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all. Everybody say do all. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's the motivation for our life. Whatever you do in word or in, in word, or, or in deed. Whatever you do, you're doing it, why? To glorify Jesus. You're doing it to uplift the name of Jesus. One of my friends, Nate Holdridge, he puts it this way. You're doing it to make Jesus famous. 
Now, it's interesting. The Greek word for child here, or children, is the word technon, and it means anyone regardless of age who is under a parent's care. It's a broad word, okay? So in other words, if you live under the care of your parents and you live under their roof and you eat their food and you drink their water and you drink their milk and all that, you're a technon. And God's word to the technon is that they would obey their parents. Now, what does that mean exactly? The word obey has to do with action, listen, honor and attitude. Action, honor and attitude. The word obey is, means to stand under or to listen under. So it's the idea of, of listening with an attentiveness and a respect and responding positively to what is heard. It means to be under another's authority like a soldier would be under his commander's authority. So, in other words, it's speaking of valuing the words spoken to you by your parents. Now, it's interesting how children can go through different phases. And I think most of us, even those, even those of us who are parents, have gone through these phases as well. Uh, these have been called the five phases of childhood. The first is young adolescence, and it means uh, the, the young adolescent thinks, my parents can do no wrong. My parents know everything. My dad is the smartest guy in the world. My mom is the smartest gal in the world. Remember, remember when your kids used to think that? <laughs> The second phase is puberty. puberty. In puberty, it's my parents know a lot, but not everything. And then it comes to the third phase, the teenage years, where my parents don't know anything. <laughs> and then that leads to the fourth phase in the early 20s, where it's my parents know more than I thought they knew, right? That's in the 20s. I start calling you like, hey, dad, can I get some advice? And then the fifth phase is when they become parents and then it's like, my parents actually do know everything. <laughs> and they call you all the time. My son called me from Oklahoma today. Dad, got a few minutes. I got a question for you. I need some advice. I love that, you know? So it kind of goes full circle. But the key for us who are parents is to not get frustrated when they're in phase three, all right? Sometimes teenagers complain to me, Pastor Rob, you just don't understand my parents. They're way too strict. It's so hard to obey their rules. And when they say that, this is what I say. I, go, I want you to think about Jesus. Jesus was a teenager once. Isn't that wild to think about? And if there was ever a child who knew more than his parents, <laughs> it was Jesus, right? In Luke chapter 2, verse 51 52, it says, And then he went down with them. He's 12 years old this time. And came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God. And man, notice that. When he's 12 years old, he's going down with them. He's putting, making himself subject to them. And here's what's interesting. When Jesus finally stepped out of his parents' home and began his public ministry, remember, the, remember what the first thing that he did? Remember how he began his public ministry? With baptism, right? He goes down to the Jordan River. Now, I want you to think about this. He walks down into the water. 
John the Baptist takes Jesus and, and, he, and he's you know, praying over him and he's going to baptize him. And all of a sudden, a dove comes. The Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And the voice of God the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, what do you think about this? Jesus, at that point, had not done any, no recorded miracles. He had no recorded teachings. He was 30 years old. What's he been doing for 30 years? (laughs) Baby born in Bethlehem, the wise men come, and 30 years go by. What's he been doing? He's been living in his parents' house. He's been obeying his mom and dad. He's been helping in Joseph's carpenter shop. And then when Joseph died, Jesus took over working in the carpenter shop, and now he's taking care of his mom and his brothers and sisters. That's what he's been doing. And so now he's going to begin his ministry, and God the Father's going, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. For 30 years, man, he's, he's been doing it right. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? And that... that speaks to us that when you live in honor and obedience to your parents, it's well-pleasing to God. And so Paul was challenging his readers, do what you've always been doing, technons, you, you kids living in your parents' house, but do it with a whole different motive. Do it to please God. Let that be your motive. And then he gives a word to the fathers in verse 21. Fathers, he says, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The book of Ephesians adds discouraged to wrath. Do not provoke them to wrath or discouragement. But here's what I want you to catch. This is actually a word to both parents. Why do I say that? The word that he uses here for fathers in the Greek is actually also translated parents. Parents, don't provoke your children to discourage them. This same word is used in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, when it says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. Same word that is being used here for father, by his parents, because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not uh, not afraid of the king's command. So note the heart. The heart of God in this is parents, don't provoke your children to wrath lest they become discouraged. So this is what he's saying to all of us who are our parents is we need to see the big picture is you have a role to play in shaping your child's view of God. They are learning, in other words, our kids are learning how to relate to God as they relate to you. So this is a huge responsibility for us. They are to honor and obey you as they're learning how to honor and obey the Lord. So properly representing the Lord to our kids is of the utmost importance. It's why I always tell parents this. Hey, when you're you know, seeking to train and instruct your kids, don't just say to them, don't do that. You need to tell them why. Don't just, and they say, well, why? Because I said so. Uh, Wrong answer. You need to tell them why, because they need to understand the heart of God in the way that you're seeking to train them. Because that's the point of this. 
Now, what's interesting, when he says do not provoke them, the word really is do not needlessly irritate them. That's what it really means. Don't needlessly irritate them. And the key word in that phrase is needlessly. You see, as parents, you are called to lead them and train them. And that means sometimes you're going to say no. Sometimes you're going to tell your kids no. Sometimes you're going to tell your kids, hey, I'm sorry, but you can't do that. And they're going to get mad at you when you do that. They're going to get bummed out. And that's okay. Because that was needed. What Paul is saying here is don't needlessly provoke them. Don't needlessly provoke them. So with the help of the Holy Spirit, we need to learn how to pick our battles as parents. You know, sometimes we, we, we need to give them a little bit of rope. Sometimes we can be overprotective and it frustrates them. I heard somebody say this, you know, once uh, about parenting. Don't bail. Don't bail them out, but let them fail. Sometimes we need to do that. And certain things like we need to, okay, you know, they, they really want to do this or I don't think it's a good idea and I could just, you know, but, you know, I don't think it's going to kill them or anything. It's like, okay, and, and they're going to fail, but they're going to learn. And you come alongside them like God does with us and you pick them up. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we need to try to not lash out or discipline them in anger. And listen, if you ever do that, you need to go back to your kids. I've had to do this many times and say, hey, I, I just, I need to talk to you. I had to do this with my son. Aaron once I, I said, Aaron, I need to talk to you. I need to say that I'm, I'm telling you I'm sorry for the way that I disciplined you. You needed to be disciplined, but I disciplined you in anger, and I shouldn't have done that, and I'm sorry. Man, that goes a long way in earning the respect of your kids. So he gives this word to the parents, the children, and then he closes with a word to employees and employers. Look at verse 22. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Now this was written to slaves. There were over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. It was a part of their culture. And it's important to note this. The Bible never, ever, ever, everybody say never, ever. Never, ever. It never, ever condones slavery. Okay, But you read of slavery in the Bible, but it never condones it. What the Bible is doing is it's simply illustrating what was going on in that culture. And slavery was a big part of the Roman culture. And the gospel, though, changes that mentality. Because Jesus, he, he died to make us all free, to make us all one in Christ. But what Paul says to slaves and masters gives us some insight that we can apply to employees and employers. So to the employee, in verse 22, he says, Do your work heartily as unto the Lord, not for eye service. In other words, don't just perform when the boss is around. Because you're not working for him. You're working for God. Don't do it as a man pleaser. Oh, the boss is watching. Because, no, no, no. You're always, remember, the big boss is always watching. God's always watching. 
And so I'm here and I'm doing my work as unto the Lord. You, you want to be an amazing employee? Do your work to glorify God. Go to work with that mentality. I'm here today, and, and everything I want to do, I want to glorify God. That's why I believe that Christians should be the best and hardest workers in every single company. We might not be the most talented, but we should be the hardest working and have the best reputations and be the ones that our bosses can rely upon the most. Why? Because we're working for the Lord. So again, this was a whole new approach. Work for the Lord, not for the paycheck. And then note this in verse 24, he says, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done. And there is no favoritism. Isn't this an amazing thought? No, this should change your mindset about work. Paul's saying, if you go to work and you work for God, when you're going to work, that's going to be part of your spiritual reward in heaven. Isn't that amazing? You're you're going to get a reward in heaven for being a Christian that seeks to honor God in the way in his work ethic, in her work ethic on the job. That's amazing. And then he gives a word to the employers, and we'll close with this. Masters, provide your slaves with what is just and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. The implication here is you have the same master. Notice, you also, catch that? You also? The, 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 the slave, the employee, he has a master in heaven that he's working for. You also have a master in heaven. Same master, and you have a different responsibility being the employer or being the boss, and you're to be just and fair. Why? Because Jesus has been just and fair to you. And so you treat the people that are working under you the way Jesus has treated you. And this is really an issue of stewardship. And I want to end with this. Catch this. You are a steward. If you are a boss, you are a steward. What that means is God has entrusted something to you. He's entrusted to you a position. If you are an employer, he's entrusted to you a company. You're a steward of that. But whether you're a boss or employer, you also are a steward of the people that God has placed in your care. And the way that you conduct your affairs and treat your employees can also be an incredible witness and testimony to who Jesus is if you are treating them justly and fairly the way that Jesus has treated you. So to wrap all this up, Paul is saying because we have this new destiny, destiny and this new identity in Christ, it means that we should have a whole new outlook and way that we approach our relationships in the home and also at work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for how practical sometimes people want to say that that the Bible isn't practical, but Lord, you speak here of things that we are living with and living in on a daily basis. And so, Lord, as we break up into our groups now,
to discuss these matters. May you be glorified in our conversation. May we stir up one another, as it says there in Proverbs 27, as iron sharpens iron, so does the man sharpen the countenance of his friend. May we sharpen and stir up one another to love and good works. In Jesus' name, amen.